I'm Nicole Antoinette, and this is Real Talk Radio, a podcast filled with honest conversations about everything. Today, you're in for a treat because you will get to meet Holly Whitaker. I know I want to write a book and many books. I know I want to build a this organization and I want to do this thing at this organization. I want this organization to do, you know, and I had all these fixed things. And then I think that probably the hardest part of it was having, you know, if you have gotten these things, if you've like checked all these boxes, part of the problem is that we think that the happiness is in the achieving when it never is. But what was so confusing about it and so hard about it and still is so hard about it is there is no other definite thing. So there's just that liminal space of absolutely not knowing anything and feeling extremely directionless. Holly is the founder and CCO of Tempest, a modern digital recovery program. She's also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Quit Like a Woman, achievements that she worked really hard for. But what happens when you work really hard for something, and then you actually get it and find out that you hate it? That's what this conversation is all about. I asked Holly, how does that feel to get what you thought you wanted and find that you just don't? How do we reckon with the difference between the fantasy of the thing and the actual reality of the thing? When do we leave? When do we quit? When do we stay? Holly talks us through her own experience in a real, messy, and wonderful way, and I hope that you enjoy it and find it as thought-provoking as I did. And a huge shout-out to the folks whose support made this conversation possible, the 400-plus people in our sliding-scale Patreon community. You are the best. It's your monthly funding that allows me to get a full transcript made for each episode, cover all admin and hosting costs, and pay fair hourly compensation to every single guest, to our sound engineer, Adam Day, and to myself as the host, researcher, and producer of this show. It takes a village, as they say, and I am just so grateful to the virtual village that has gathered around this mission of filling the world with honest conversations. Our Patreon community, which I have nicknamed Adventures in Honesty, it's not just a funding source for this podcast, though. It's actually so much more than that. I host a live end-of-month reflection and journaling circle for the whole community each month. You get a bonus monthly podcast episode called Real Talk Reflections, where my friend Julia Hanlon and I share deeply and honestly, maybe sometimes too honestly, about our own real lives in real time. You get my monthly business and money report, where I share all the -the behind-the-scenes information, and I do an in-depth monthly Q&A about the financial, administrative, and decision-making side of my own small business, and lots more. If you love this show, if you love these kind of conversations, I bet you'd feel really welcome and have lots of fun in our community. And as I said, we do operate on a sliding scale, with all tiers getting access to absolutely everything, regardless of you know where on that scale you fall. And you can find us at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette, and I will see you there. All right, now, are you ready? We will get into the show. All right, here we go. Holly, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I can't believe it's been 
like five, five years. years since we five last podcast. That that feels like an amount of time. First of all, that's too long. That I can't believe the podcast is this old. Like what happened? <laughs> um, and also just wow, a lot has happened in the last five years for a both of us. A lot has happened, and I remember exactly where I was when we recorded it. I was in Italy when we recorded that episode. Yeah, you were in Italy and I was living in Oregon in my mm-hmm. former house with my former spouse. Yes. So, yes. Things have changed. Also, that was <laughs> right around my five year soberversary. And now this is right around my 10 year. So yeah, it just yeah. it's it's funny that I feel like you even just these couple of conversations, you have been a really integral part of like a couple of important periods in my life. Isn't that funny how that works? I mean, I, I do I feel the same too, because for me as well, they're they're milestone moments. So I am about to celebrate my eight month eight year sobriety anniversary in a month. So yeah. Our not even a month. Oh my up. gosh. It's like in two weeks. <laughs> wow. So <sighs> that's wild. Um, so this might be kind of a strange place to start, but I have been thinking lately about little ways to make my life feel more luxurious. And I would like to mm. ask you to tell me about your favorite everyday luxuries. Like what are some things that feel luxurious to you, but like in a totally accessible way? Oh, this is going to sound so basic, but water. I actually last night went to a store and bought two gallons of water. I love water. And I find that one of the things in pandemic time, especially that has been really helpful to me is being very grateful about very simple things. And so I actually, when I'm drinking water, pay attention to how much I love it. So I know that that's probably not luxurious, but I find, I mean, it is, you know, water is a luxury. And then what else do I do? I'm just really good at like pampering my little body. I really am. I'm I'm very good. I mean, I really push myself hard, but I also at the same time, I'm really like, I, I take my body and I put it in warm baths. It loves warm water. It loves the sun. It loves to sweat. It loves comfortable clothes, you know? And so things like, like really making sure that I'm comfortable. And what's that word? What's that like Swedish? Is it a Swedish word for cozy? Oh, Huga. I don't think I'm pronouncing it correctly, but yeah, super into that. Cozy. Yeah. Huga. Yeah. Huga. Yeah. I I like the idea when you were talking about like the body likes warm water, like the body likes this, like thinking about it almost as like a separate entity that needs to be cared for. What is did this you, thing like? Yeah. Did you ever have one of those Tamagotchi toys? No, I miss do you, that. Do you know what they it, are? I know exactly what they are, but that was like right after my childhood. Okay. Okay. Um, maybe that right. That's our little bit of age differences that I had and was obsessed with the Tamagotchi. For anyone who doesn't know, you can look it up, but they were basically like little digital pets in the 90s that their needs were very simple, right? Like it needs to be fed. It needs to be played with. It needs... I don't know, it needs to poop. I don't actually remember all the things about how the toy worked, but one of the, the like coping tactics for me when I'm finding it hard to care for myself is to think of myself like as Tamagotchi me. Like, what does Tamagotchi Nicole need? Like, oh, Tamagotchi Nicole needs a nap, like needs a cookie, needs what like for yeah, some reason that really so helps. so true because we don't really think of it that way of like that we're, I think of it very much like I am given this body and it's my responsibility. And so I've got to take care of it. And I, I think that that's been extremely helpful to me because I didn't take care of my body for so long. 
Mm, yeah. Can you identify a point where you started to actually like really believe that? Because I feel like that what you just said that, you know, I've been given this body, it's my responsibility to care for it. I feel like that's a thing that at different periods in my life, I would have heard that and been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But yeah, then actually it sounds really believing fluffy. it. Yeah. But, it's, but I mean, it it actually sounds quite profound to me now. I'm like, yes, we've been given these bodies. We have to take care <laughs> of them. But was there a point where you actually started to believe that? Well, I think that's so, it's so complex because like the wellness industry has like sold us this idea of almost like self-care as a productivity goal. Um, so it's almost like an additional burden that we've been, you know, given that we have to measure up to. And so I think there's, you know, it's fraught with that piece of it. It's also fraught with this forcing idea of being in a place. It's really hard, I think, to care about our bodies when we've really been conditioned from birth to hate our bodies and to not care for them. And so it can often be what you just said is exactly right, which is I think it is very hard to make that leap from hearing it, knowing it, and and the platitudes around it, and also just really believing it. But it was very specifically in early sobriety, and that was really it. I just started to develop this sense of um, respect for, for the vessel. And uh, it doesn't mean that I, I, you know, am precious about it or that I don't, you know, harm myself constantly. But it is just this developing relationship with loving um, the thing that I, you know, have to live in every day. Mm-hmm. And thinking about it really in those practical terms, right? Like your body is your home. It's your only forever home. And yeah, yeah, I think that I can sometimes take it too far of like, okay, then I can, you know, only do the absolute best things for it when like, no, I like do and eat and whatever trash things all the time, right? But it's not an all or nothing. It's very much the both and of, you know, that can be true. And feeling like it's my responsibility to care for it can feel really sweet and tender also. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I love that. So one of the things, like perhaps the thing that I'm the most dying to ask you about and, you know, kind of formed the basis for us, you know, just deciding to have this conversation, not that I need an excuse to want to have a long conversation with you, believe me, I don't, <laughs> but is a story that I know that you wanted to share of working really hard for something and getting it and hating it, which we're going to get into the details of, but I, I think a lot about the difference between the fantasy of the thing and the reality of the thing. I think about that. Yeah. I thought about it with sobriety. I, you know, what I thought it was going to be like and then what it was actually like. I've thought about it with van life. I've thought about it with long distance hiking. I've thought about it with self-employment. And the, the, the reality is almost always different than the fantasy, sometimes in really great ways That's and right. sometimes in really challenging ways. And it's not okay. talked about that much, like how disappointing it can be when like the fantasy isn't the reality. So yeah, take us to the start of this story for you. Where do we begin? Well, I think there's like, there's three things that happened kind of all and and, and all happened at the same time. And I think one was I got the relationship that I had been writing about on paper forever and absolutely hated it. Like the the one that was like literally taken from the vision I, I don't know, like the 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 map that I made um, just a couple of years ago when I was really trying to be specific about what I was looking for in a partner, I think. And then at the same time, I published my book. And at the same time, you know, I grew what started as a very small business that was just me into an organization that now has uh, around 70 people um, working there. 
And so I don't know which one of those threads, because they're all really different, but they're all really similar. But I think what's so what's so interesting, like before we dive into it, what's so interesting is that there is the the piece of it that's not even necessarily even not necessarily about like hating it so much, but it about but but really the way that we say when I have this thing, then when you know when this thing happens, then I will be okay. And then what happens when you have made that tragic assumption and then you have it and also because you have it and because you wanted it for so long, then you're really torn, right? And that's when I think for me, that was when a lot of my disconnection started to happen, which was forcing myself because on paper, it looked like what I had really staked my claim around and then not being able to objectively look at my own happiness from that thing um, without believing, but I'm supposed to, you know, this is supposed to make me happy. So I'm going to try and make this work and I'm going to deny how I feel. Yeah. And Um, for for me in those times, it can be filled with a lot of, I was going to say self-doubt, but I think actually like being quite mean to myself with dialogue, like what's wrong with you that you finally have this thing and you can't be happy, right? Well, if you can't be happy now, you're you're never going to be happy, right? That it's very easy to weaponize the, that difference between the fantasy and the reality of the thing, like when when it does wind up being in a way that's yeah. challenging, I find it very easy to weaponize that against myself and make it all about something's wrong with me that I, I'm not grateful enough. I'm not appreciative enough. And sure, maybe sometimes a perspective switch can be helpful, but also sometimes it's just you thought you wanted the thing and you don't. And can that just be neutral information, <laughs> which is very easier said than done for me. When it's also, and I, I think it's also like, here's another, you know, track of it. So let's, let's take, you know, I mean, which there's, there's three tracks that we can go on. Cause I think the relationship one is so interesting. And I also think the, you know, the CEO one is also very interesting, but what I found so, um, I was desperate to be not desperate, but I really absolutely wanted to be a CEO and I wanted to be a CEO in my, I knew at the last job I was at, I dated uh, a CEO and I watched his movements and I was obsessed with what he did and how he did it. And I, you know, while I was building Hip Sobriety and then Tempest, I read so many books on different, you know, leader, on leaders, on people that had, you know, and visionaries that had, had really like been able to combine both their creative vision and also their executive discipline and I remember so vividly saying to my therapist about four years ago, it was, it was probably the summer of 2016 or the summer of 2007, it was the summer of 2017. And I said, I want to be a CEO. Like I want to go for it. And I want, and I remember having this like somewhat, you know, it, it felt a little to want that specific thing. It wasn't all I wanted. I want to be really clear. I really wanted to build, you know, I wanted to build something and, and I had something, you know, really driving me that I wanted to bring, that I wanted to bring forth. But at the same time, I also had this fixed idea of wanting to, you know, run an organization. And I thought that was absolutely what my skill set was. And this, like that I had this merging skill set that was going to really be valuable in this new role, but also I just had this desire. And I remember telling her, and her saying that tracks, that makes sense, and her validating it. And then 
I think the other piece of it that like winding back to kind of the thought that I was on as I was starting to talk, I don't, I, I now know I've done, been there, done that. And I absolutely don't want to be a CEO. And also I have to think, you know, I wasn't wrong for wanting it. And I think that that desire that I had way back when was meant to serve me to do what I did over the past many years, but also that desire, it wasn't like it was wrong and I made a mistake. I think it was also the thing that was, you know, like whispering to me or drive, like, like basically the motivate part of the motivational force that helped me to build the thing I built. And then when it stopped serving me and it was no longer what I, you know, meant to do or spend my time and energy, the desire changed. So I think it was really, it's easy to kind of say like, oh, I was wrong. But I also think I wasn't wrong in the timing of it. I think I just, you know, I think maybe something ran its natural course. Any of that track? Mm -hmm. Any of that? (laughs) Completely. Yeah, completely. My friend Alex, um, I mean, this was years ago, this conversation, but I remember she said to me that, you know, along the lines of changing your mind about something like this, that it's not that you were necessarily wrong before or that the previous version of you was lying or anything like that. It's just that the truth has changed. Yeah. And also sometimes we were wrong before, right? Like that, like absolutely I have made mistakes and have been very, very wrong and I'm sure will be again and continually, but that you only know what it is that you know. And as you experience new things. And this is why one of my sort of guiding principles for myself is to try to, as much as possible, to shorten the time span between when I'm interested in something and when I try even like the babyest version of it. Not to say you can like necessarily try being a CEO, but I find that the longer... I wait. It's it's sort of like what writing a book has become for me. Like it's something that I've wanted for such a long time that I have turned it into this like mythical, wild, the like fantasy of the thing, as opposed to if you just like try it sooner, it sort of breaks that power or that spell that something can have, yeah. which uh, like isn't always relevant. But so a couple of questions. So yeah, let's talk about the like sort of business CEO track first, and then we can absolutely come back to the relationship stuff because I agree. I think that's really interesting. When you said that you really wanted to be be a CEO, that you're looking at this person you're dating and like wanting to emulate that, reading the leadership books, can you speak a little bit to why? Like what did you think that was going to give you or what did you think that it was going to make you feel that you didn't already feel? That's such a good question. I think it was really wrapped up in, you know, it's important to understand that I, so I had in, in 2013, while I was just barely getting sober, I had a very, very strong pull to create what I ended up creating. Some, at least like the early ideas of it were very clear before I even really understood it. It was, it really was something that um, I left my job seven years ago this month. Well, by the time this airs, you know, seven years and some change. But it, I'm in that seven year period of when I really left to go start it. And so there was a, there was that, what I was trying to say in that it wasn't just, oh, I want to be a CEO of anything. You know, it was really like I very, very much wanted to build something that was going to be large. And like, I remember sitting with my friend, Julie Santiago and God, like probably 2014, we were both, maybe like 2015, we were both talking about what we were building. And I remember she, I was just so clear on, on, and I wanted to 
create something that was going to be massively large and also really create a different way of recovery. And so I think that there is, you know, for me, it was wrapped up in a number of things, but it was mostly about the idea of what it was that I want, like the vision in my mind of what it was that I wanted to build. And I did have, I mean, I, I, I started my career in Silicon Valley. I'd worked in startups, you know, as like a, as a consultant for years and then, you know, worked in a startup that went from 50 to, you know, 750 people over a five-year period. And I just, that, that was, I think for me, it was the only way I could really understand how to grow, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So it was part of the package. It was, I'm going to raise venture capital. I'm going to, you know, build an organization from the ground up in the way that I, you know, want to build an organization. We're going to have, you know, this type of benefit plan and this type of work environment and these shared values and this specific type of culture. And it was far more about, I think, you know, for me, the following a a well-worn path that I, that was the world I lived in and also a path I had seen others yeah. Well, down. I mean, that's what success looked like around you. That's what success looked like around me. Yeah. And also that's what really the, to me, I think it was also when I was building this, this was not when, you know, there was no, so we curiosity. There was, you know, there was, there was really, it was a very different climate. And I think starting out and trying to explain what I was trying to do, you know, people really didn't buy into the idea that, culture around alcohol would change or that people would look at quitting drinking like they do quitting cigarettes. And I did not get a ton of validation in uh, the circles I ran in. It was kind of like this cute thing I was doing. I remember talking to a lawyer from one of the big firms in the Bay Area, trying to pick up some you know legal representation as I started to have conversations with investors. And he was just like you know, that's a cute idea, but you should definitely just like, have you heard of Tony Robbins? Like, you know, so people were consistently telling me, you know, save for a a small, a handful, people were consistently telling me that I didn't have the right idea and that I should just, you know, Mm -hmm. play small. And so for me, I think that when I went out and raised our first few million dollars, I closed that round in late 2017. I did it in San Francisco and all of a sudden I had, you know, two and a half million dollars. And not only that, I, I, I got money from, you know, really like from, from a good investor set. And so for me, it was this, I, if, I'm, if I'm sitting here and I'm being honest, it was about the power that I could gain. It, for me, it was like, how do I take this? idea that most people think is silly and how do I validate it and how do I start to gain traction, get people to care about it. And so, and, cause I was convicted in it, you know, I, it was my religion. I believe fully and believe fully in you know the model, but not many people did. And so it was more like, how do I get people to care about what I'm doing? Well, you do, <laughs> you do what, what you know, which is you become like, a Steve Jobs or like you become like a Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. You know, that was my model. uh, And forgive me if I'm projecting, I certainly don't mean to. The allure sometimes of not 
like proving people wrong almost of, you know, people don't take this seriously, but I know what this is. And like, I'll show you not in like a vindictive way, but when you know, when you feel that something is true, and especially for you with like this method of recovery and everything that you had gone through and the people you had already helped and just like what you knew to be true. And then to be told, no, 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 like, okay, little girl, cute idea, right? Or <laughs> whatever. Which is basically what most said. Yeah, exactly. And that I would imagine feels enraging and that it's very satisfying to be like, mm, okay, I'm going to raise millions of dollars and build this 70 person company and it's going to be incredibly effective and like middle finger to all of you who did not believe in me. <laughs> yeah. And I think that what's so funny about that is I remember the first investor I ever talked to and talked to him in June, 2014, and he was actually extremely positive, but told me, you know, go out build a brand, get seeking engagements, then come back, you know, which is not typically what you tell, you know, I'm, I'm sure that when Mark Zuckerberg was thinking about people were not telling him to go out, give some talks and, you know, build a, a build a following. And, a, and a, a, you know, I mean, that Mark Zuckerberg is probably not the best choice because he built the following that I built my following on, but, or he built the platform I built my following on. But the idea of like, men don't typically get that cute idea, you know, but maybe mm -hmm. you should go out and build a website and try and sell it to, you know, board housewives and just stay in your lane. And so I think it was, it was extremely, it was fuel for the fire though. That was um, more, the more no that I got and the more that people wrote me off, the more convicted I became. Mm -hmm. It was, it had like the opposite effect. And the funny thing about it is that I, that that same investor, that first one, I saw him. I was at a, like an investor conference. God, when was that? January 2020, right before pandemic. I was in San Francisco. I was at a house party that was uh, like meet and greet of like you know all these different investors and CEOs and whatever. And I just remember him like running across the room and saying, you know, I knew you would do it. And being you know because I had just published my book and my article I had written an article and it was the Wall Street Journal and he was just like I've been following you or no it was the New York Times and he was like I've been following you and I'm so you know whatever but the funny thing is it's just like when you by the time you get to a certain point of like being able to say I was right I, I do believe if you're do if you're doing it right and you're learning what you should be learning you don't really care anymore mm -hmm. what the naysayers said or didn't say. I have forgotten, you know, just like I've forgotten, you know, the exes that rejected me, you know, that I assumed at some point I would be like, you know, eat your heart out. You know, we have these, when we're first like really close to those rejection periods, we do think and fantasize about that moment. But then by the time any of those moments have come where I do have, you know, the look at me now kind of thing, I, I really don't care about the look at me mm -hmm. now. And so, yes. And also funnily enough, like, no, it feels good just because it feels, it feels in itself like good to have done something that I personally was, um, was a personal challenge. If that, if that makes yeah. Sense. Yeah, absolutely. That that makes so much sense. And so, I mean, obviously, I know that we're we're glossing over a bunch, but you know, the like TLDR is you did it right. <laughs> like you built this company, you did this thing. And so, I'm I'm interested in was there a particular moment or like series of moments or conversations or something where you knew that it wasn't what you wanted, like to be this CEO and to do this thing? Yeah, I think. Um... I mean, they never, like, it's just funny because I, they never really, 
I think that there is a subset, there's a culture, there's a, there is a, there is a, there is a track, right? And that is the CEO founder. And that wasn't always the case. You know, founders didn't typically like run their organizations in the sense that we expect people who raise money to build and then run their organizations today. But there is now an entrenched belief in this like myth of the founder CEO, again, because of people like Jeff Bezos, like from, from like the exceptions, right? From Jeff Bezos to Mark Benioff, I mean, all men, Mark Benioff to Mark Zuckerberg, you know, Steve Jobs, we already talked about, like, there is this, you know, even like Howard Schultz, and I can keep going, but the CEO founder is this like mythical thing that you're supposed to be. And so I think that the first, like, it was, it's the hardest, <laughs> it's not, it's not the hardest job anybody could have, but it was, it was, it was such a ridiculous job. And I created what I did because I absolutely believed in the model I was creating and the vision I was creating and, and like really the creative aspect of it and the art of it. But then you, you know, and that's what, that's what you raise money off of. And then you get into it and it really is this, that's not what you're doing right? You're, you are, you're the, the head of an organization and your first job is to be the head of that organization and like an organization being the key word here. And so I just was, it's like, you know, the frog boiling, you know, sitting in a pot of water that slowly boils around you. I think that there was just, I got very used to, as soon as I raised that first round, I stopped sleeping and that was it. As soon as the money hit the bank, all of a sudden the clock started ticking. And I, I moved to New York really shortly thereafter and I just stopped sleeping. And I just remember like, you know, consistently I have an incredible support network of advisors and, you know, friends that are following the same track as I am. And I just remember just kind of believing I was supposed to get used to it and that it was just all part of it. And so I think that that's, there was no like one moment, there was just the getting used to a really incredibly difficult job. And I last, like Thanksgiving of 2019, I, the, the founder and CEO of Wild Fang, you know that company? Yeah. I heard her on a podcast on like a, like a Harvard Business Review podcast. And I heard her talking about how, how impossible it was to be a woman to be a founder and to be a CEO and the level of anxiety she had and the quality of life that she had. And I listened to it while I was on a plane to go see my family. Super. I mean, I just was, I looked like death. I really did. And I remember listening to it and feeling so validated because no one was talking about how hard and lonely it, it is to be responsible for an organization, especially as like the, the founder of it. And then I think I posted something on Instagram about it. And what happened was I got a bunch of messages from people saying that I needed to like check into rehab or that I wasn't taking care of myself or taking my recovery seriously. And so it even felt like there, it felt in this way, like I, what I was feeling, I wasn't even allowed to feel. And I wasn't even allowed to talk about because number one, I don't think that there's not a large understanding and I didn't feel like there was a large understanding of what my actual job was from like the population in general. But then I also felt like there was, you know, there was really nowhere to go to have this like weird, honest conversation about 
how much you absolutely feel ruined by what you do every day. Mm. So I would say that that was a real revelation point. Yeah. And, you know, when you said, you know, the money hit the bank and I just stopped sleeping, like it's the red flag of any situation where the assumption is that you just need to get used to or suck it up with like really inhumane conditions, right? Whether you're doing it to yourself or the situation's doing it to you, like that's not, that's not sustainable. But the funny thing is I knew it wasn't sustainable, but I also knew at the, on the other hand of it, I was convicted and I felt like this is the path I've chosen. And also, I mean, it's so, it's so hard to really boil it down and pull it apart. And I think there was also just this like piece of me that was, I really was just like, well, this is what I signed up for and I'm in it. And I had, I think that I had no problem putting this before myself and, and doing that for, and that wasn't just, you know, post raising the money that was in almost every step of building it. And then there was a, an almost relief in the priority of, I just, am going to worry about this one thing and I'm going to let everything else, you know, I mean that, and I'm not like, you know, somebody in recovery, I didn't let my recovery go. Somebody, you know, like there, like I need to be really clear. It wasn't like, Oh, this is the only thing, but it was just, yes, that should be a red flag. And also the organization is successful, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, I don't think, you know, sitting from this space, there's really no other way it could have gone. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, and that's why the nuance of this conversation is important, right? Because yeah. it's it's really, I mean, there's no way that we can pick apart, you know, an entire thing in any one single conversation or probably even <laughs> over a series of conversations. But that's why I think that it's really worth talking about because there's a, there's a, an overly simplified narrative of like, well, I wasn't sleeping and like I was uh, too anxious. So I just like walked away, right? Because- yeah, I know, but I couldn't and I didn't want to. I mean, that's the other part of it too. Exactly. And I also think like it's really important and we talk about this really I talk about this in, in like this in the sense of recovery which is yeah like maybe we're drinking too much for years and maybe we're really sick from it but also maybe that thing that's also killing you is somehow saving you. And so I also have to like go back to that you know I wouldn't have gotten sober a day earlier and I I don't think it was wasted time that it, I don't think the time it took me to move through what I moved through, even though it was horrible and, 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 you know, it was killing me. I needed every minute that I had in my path. And I feel the same way about this, which is just like, it wasn't just, Oh, I had this whole, you know, it was really, it was really complex and there was no way, I mean, you, you know, cold dead hands, like try and get me to, to leave yeah. this thing. And yeah. I think that there was a really natural like arc and path to coming to a conclusion that I was, you know, going to replace myself as the CEO and move into something that was less painful. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, the sacrifices are worth it until they're not with a lot of these things. And I think that it almost like does a disservice to our former selves to, you know, say, oh, well, you know, I never should have done that or I never should have gone through those, you know, sleepless things or, you know, whatever, that it seems really clear that it was worth it to you until yeah. maybe it wasn't and that's okay too right like that's i think that it's 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 really cute to memeify personal growth on instagram right or whatever yeah. and there's 
it doesn't fit into this like tiny box, right? That that this is, I don't know, it's it's messier, it's more complicated than that. And that's, you know, I'm grateful that you're that you're willing to talk about it. How does it feel having made that transition now out of being CEO? I think, um, oh God. I mean, wow. <laughs> I mean, I started, so I started the conversation, you know, and so just to be, just to be clear, I, you know, I didn't, I, I still work at, at the organization. I just changed my role to something that's way more conducive to what I do, which is creation. But I started the conversation. I did my research on it starting last July and August of, to, of 2020. And it was just like, it, again, like so similar to like any big scary decision I've ever made. I did my research on it. I, I looked at other examples of people that had gone before me and done similar things like Reid Hoffman at LinkedIn, founded LinkedIn, and then replaced himself as CEO right around the same time and at the same size as, as Tempest was. So I had really good examples of individuals that had done this. I, you know, I've, I know plenty of, of people that had done it themselves had, you know, at, at different stages. And so it wasn't like a, it was a long, hard, thoughtful decision that I got a ton of, that I ran by a lot of people that I trust. And it's also, you know, as one of my advisors said, it's a, it's a bell, it's a bell you can't unring, you know? Mm-hmm. So if I went to the board of directors of my organization and said, Hey, I'm thinking about, I think we should hire a professional CEO to take us through this next phase of growth. By the time I had that conversation, I was a hundred percent in it. And having that conversation was like, oh, it, it was just one of, you know, it was a terrifying thing. And it was a six month process to find and hire and replace myself, you know, or make, create the, create the, the conditions. But the second that I think like anything voicing a thing, you know, Glennon Doyle in, in Untamed wrote this one specific line, which said, what truth are you not speaking that like when spoken out loud will change your relationship, your, you know, the institutions you're affiliated with, friendship, like what is it that you're not saying that if you did speak it out loud would actually force a change? And I thought about that and thought about that and thought about that because when I read it, probably in like, I guess I read that in um, like January of last year, I was like, oh, that I, that I, that I can barely get out of bed and that I don't think I can do the job that I'm, you know, that I'm tasked with. And I couldn't, it took me like six or seven months to be able to say that, you know? And I think the second that I said that, uh, it was just like such sweet relief. And then the transition, you know, the, the hiring process and the path to get there while still running the organization and preparing the organization to have a new boss that wasn't me and, and, and for me to have a new boss that wasn't me was just like running a marathon, but on your hands and knees. And I think I, you know, our, the new CEO started on uh, Ruth, Ruth Sun, this amazing woman that we spent a lot of time with before she came on. She started on February 1st and it like, it took me about a month to like work out, you know, getting her set up on her transition before I could take a vacation. And I don't, I think like it was almost like the first relief came saying that, but then it was like holding my breath for the next seven months. And then how it feels now on the other side of it is how it feels when you make a decision that is extremely hard and stands to cost you so much, but also is the right decision. So it's empty and it's terrifying and it's also full and it's, you know, potential and it's, 
and I'm happy and I don't feel, I mean, I, I was on a call with my therapist this morning and she was just like, wow, <laughs> you look like a different person. Mm. And I was on the, a call with one of our board members yesterday and he's like, you sound like a different person. And so it is, I think it feels like what it feels like when you make a decision in that's an integrity with who you are, even though it might cost you a whole hell of a lot. Mm. Well, that's really beautifully said. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested because you mentioned, right, these couple of different tracks of things that you got the thing you thought you wanted and it wasn't what you thought you wanted. And you mentioned that one of them was like the manifested relationship. I don't know in which ways that maybe that story is parallel to the story that you just told, but anything that you want to share about that, I would be very interested in how, you know, everything that you just said, does that, how does that apply to a non-work context? Well, I mean, it's kind of everything. I think it's so like, so at the height of all of this, like January, 2020, right? Like I am in this log we had just raised $11 million and I, I was about seven months into this relationship and then my book came out and I have never been so lost in my entire life. It was like ring, ring, ring. Like, and I just, and I bought my first home, you know, it was like all of this, it was all my vision board shit. It was literally all of it. And I was like, yes. And then I was like, oh my God. I think it was, it was so on some level embarrassing because I wrote about in my book about being on this hamster wheel you don't think you can get off of, you know? And then all of a sudden I'm promoting a book that has that line in it. And I was like, I'm on another hamster wheel. Mm. And I don't know how to get off this hamster wheel. And this is not the relationship I want to be in. This is not the job I want to do. I absolutely wanted to disappear from, I wanted to disappear. I really wanted to disappear. And so I think all of these things kind of like really like threaded themselves together. And I think it's, you know, to kind of take a step back from it, you know, before I jump into the relationship stuff, like, I think that like one of the things that I had really deluded myself about in early recovery was that this is me now. This was, this is who I am. And so I built up this whole, and I think we just keep doing this. I built up this who I am-ness based on external things. And then you get attached to them and then you realize you're never the external things. And so Meaning that I, I just, I think that there is like a, like a, I think that the, the hardest part of this was that I, in my mind was on this track and this is just going to be my forever track. And then all of a sudden I realized, Jesus, this is not my forever track and there is no forever track. Yeah. And so I, anyway, the, the relationship piece of it, you know, I mean, it was, it was exactly that. I like, it was being, finding, you know, I think the, getting the thing I wanted that I had been looking for. And then also being, having that fight between, oh, I'm supposed to be happy with this. And this is what I wanted. And if I don't want this, then what do I want? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then what to do in that space? Because I think it's not necessarily easy, but it's relatively easy to walk away from a thing if you're very certain about what it is that you're walking to. That's right. 
the like replacement, right? Like, okay, not this, but this, but how do we sit with ourselves in the place where what you know for sure is not this, but you don't know what's next. That's right. And I think that that, like, that's so money. That's exactly it. Because I have always, I have had, I mean, that's it, right? Because I was like, I know I want to write a book and many books. I know I want to build a this organization and I want to do this thing at this organization. I want this organization to do, you know, I want to be married for certain and have a partner. I, you know what I mean? I had all these fixed things. And then I think that probably the, the, like the hardest part of it was having, you know, if you have gotten these things, if you've like checked all these boxes, but you, you know, these boxes are not it. And there's so much to pull apart here too, because like having this goal oriented, you know, like society, like where we, like part of the problem is that we think that the happiness is in the achieving when it never is. But there is that piece that you just said, which is so right, which is what was so confusing about it and so hard about it and still is so hard about it is okay, not these things, but also I don't know there is no other definite thing. Mm -hmm. So there's just that liminal space of absolutely not knowing anything and feeling extremely directionless. Do you feel like you're still in that space? Yeah, but not in a desperate, sad way. (laughs) Interesting. So even that space can have its own phases, right? (laughs) I mean, it can because that's it. Like, so when I left my job, I had been at this company for five years. I had, you know, been, it was my life. It was my identity. I was, I didn't have to prove anything there. My worth was well established and my value was well established. Let's say that. And my, most of my friendships, if not, you know, like 90% of my friendships were through this organization. It was where I went every day. It was my schedule. I had been in a relationship with um, the founder of that company and was, it was just, it was it was my everything everything that i knew about myself was wrapped up in that and i quit that job really in a rash way not really rash but it just it just stopped working and i acted on it and then i hung around for 8 weeks after that meaning i put in my notice and i was like i quit and then i didn't formally put in my resignation for eight weeks, even though we were all talking about it, but I was just trying to, I don't even know what I was trying to do, but I remember sitting down with the head of HR and I remember her saying, Oh God. I mean, it was just like, of all the things she said, that quote about (laughs) about leaving the shore to swim for new horizons, like losing sight of the shore to swim for new horizons. Like you have to actually lose total sight of what you know. Mm-hmm. to hope to even begin to swim to something with greater potential. Yeah. You don't get to just move from one rock to the next rock. But I, I don't yeah. like that, right? Like I don't like I No don't, one likes I, that, I but that's why the spoils go to people that can, like that is I am firmly like can like my firm belief firm is that you have to trash it completely <laughs> with absolutely no hope of anything else. Um, and I'm like hope, not faith. I have complete, but hope that like this other thing is going to save you. You have to actually go on pure faith alone and believe in like possibility uh, and believe in yourself and believe in, you know, like a kind universe and all of that bullshit. 
you do in order because otherwise we just cling, we just cling and we cling and we cling. And like life is, you know, continuously expanding. And I know I sound like an Abraham Hicks person right now or like a secret person, (laughs) stuff that I do like appreciate. But like, I mean, this is in the most like literal sense of like, we cling as humans to small shitty stuff. We cling to scraps because we're sold into a scarcity model. We're sold into this belief that like, you know, there's not, there's only so much that can go along that that's a zero sum game that there's, and so when we get us, when we get a piece of something that looks good, you know, like we will just stay there um, because we can't imagine anything better can come along. And that is like what this is, what everything that we're talking about, you know, like that, the okay relationship that checks all the boxes, yeah. but that maybe makes you <laughs> feel completely disconnected from your body or the, you know, the job and the role that pays enough money that you would be an idiot to walk away from or enough gives you enough status or whatever, you know, like, because we're, we are, you know, constantly going to run back to like the safe corners mm-hmm. without realizing, you know, for me, I have a, now, a, you know, a, a, a proof, a history of proof that when I leave, the comfort of something that I feel is like the, the most I'll ever do behind. I am constantly surprised by what that makes room for. And yeah. It's always better than what I could have imagined. Well, that's encouraging. I feel that I will be re-listening to the last like four minutes of everything that you just said, like over and over again, a couple of times. Thank you for the pep talk. Um, <laughs> that's the pep I, talk I give myself every day, but that's it. It is it. Like, because to, to like be able to separate myself from that role was one of the hardest things that I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah, I I think a lot about uh, maybe this is like a weird example, but you know when I'm brainstorming something like let's say it's something to do with my business or a change or a pivot I want to make or like a new offering or something, one of the things that I often have to remind myself is like our range of what we think is possible is really narrow and related to things that we already have proof that we can do. And that can be really limiting that if I'm thinking of, okay, you know, what are all the possibilities that this can be? All the possibilities are still usually relatively related to what I'm already doing because I have some basis in this. And like, that's, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I do really need the reminder, you know, of what you said about like losing sight of the shore. Like sometimes like the next thing or the bigger thing or whatever you can't see it from your current vantage point because your current vantage point has kind of like the blinders and the biases of everything that you've already done. But if it's going to be something that's really new, it has to be new. And that means you're like floating in that liminal space for a while, which I don't like, but, but it's true. Yeah. It's so cliche and it's so true. It is. It's so cliche, but it is absolutely so true. Everything we do is based on the history that we know on our known knowns. And, and so, yeah, so like, and can yeah. change comes from, I mean, I, I think about this, I mean, sobriety for me was the real turning point for this. Like it yeah. was really the first thing that I had no frame of reference for. I didn't know a single yeah. person in real life that had done it. Like you I mean, this yep. was in 2011, there was no online community for it, or nope. at least there wasn't that I knew about, right? There was barely <laughs> no. even an Instagram. And sometimes <gasps> I think back to, it was a month before my 26th birthday. And I'm like, who was that version of me who was like, you know what? We're done with this. Like sometimes I think about her and I'm like, she is so cool. She is like so like centered in her, I don't know, like rightness and integrity because that was a choice that I had absolutely no modeling and like no reinforcement for. And it worked. So yeah. Isn't that I it's exactly right, which is why I think that recovery is so I 
I just, I think that it is the, it, it always goes back to the, the first, like the, the first time, the first proof point I have that impossible things are possible mm-hmm. and that you can do anything, you can do anything. Um, and that we're so limited in our belief system and our, and, our, and what we're, we're so limited in, in, in really understanding what we're capable of doing. Yeah. And that was completely from exactly the same situation. Never didn't know anybody that had done it. Didn't have any role models in it. Did not understand how I was going to be able to create anything beyond what I had created in terms of my life. And yeah. Yeah. And I will get questions about that sometimes. And I'm sure you do too of like, you know, how did you know it was the right thing or how did that? And it's, I mean, when I try to like think back and put myself not just in the place of sobriety, but I have walked away from a lot of things in my life, you know, things that were awful or, and more difficult, things that were good but not great. And that I, I hesitate to ever try to give anybody advice around that because it's not necessarily like, well, here's like the four step plan. If this, this, and this are true, like then it's time to leave. But I keep coming back to you for myself. If I'm really, really honest, I do know when what I want is not that, right? When you do have that feeling of not this, I might not know how it's going to happen or I might not know what comes next, but I, I do know when leaving is the choice. That's right. You know, it's so interesting. Oh my God. I'm so happy that you just said that because it, it just makes me think of something that felt really profound. (laughs) So I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago and, um, I was listening to, I was, I watched the Joan Didion documentary. Have you watched it? No, not yet. It's pretty good. And it's, I always love stories of people that are just totally committed to their craft. She's not one of my favorite writers, but I think definitely her body of work is impressive. And so anyway, that's beside the point. She, it's a, they they it's a documentary about her, but they weave in moments. They re, they weave in excerpts from her writing. And one of the things that she said about leaving New York city when she was 28 was that she the endings are always really hard to see coming, but beginnings are always very obvious to her. And I was like, no, like I never, I wrote, and I actually wrote a piece for myself, just a, a writing exercise of like writing about how I feel pathologically aware of endings. And I am, I know them so well and I see them before anyone else typically sees them, mm-hmm. but I cannot see beginnings. I never, I, I beginnings, I can, whenever people say, when did that start? Like when you asked me, when did that start? I can't tell you when something started. I can tell you when it ended. Yeah. And so. Or and when it I, ended for you, right? Like when, when the beginning of the you. ending. Yeah. That's yeah. right. And I yeah. know them and I see them and I was writing about this because I felt like, I, I think when I made the announcement about like moving from CEO immediately, it was met with that seems premature. And to me, it already felt late. And then I think I was, I, I wrote this specifically about a relationship that I was just in, um, a different relationship. And I was, I knew it was over well before it was over. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm very attuned to the end of things. And I'm also really, that's my com- my comfort zone is actually, and I'm just so curious to hear how you feel about this. But like for me, I am most comfortable when something is falling apart. That's fascinating. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> I mean, or when some, when I, when I get the memo, I, that is the, that's my territory. That's what I, that's where I like, that's where I come alive huh. because I also look at endings as always the clearing. And then, you know, the beginnings are very scary for me and like, uh, you know, but like, I'm actually so comfortable in that space when I call it. That's okay. like where I feel the absolute most alive. Okay. So then follow-up question. If the coming apart is the thing you can see the most clearly and, you know, potentially represents a comfort zone of sorts, like you just said, do you think that there's ever a tendency to like keep recreating endings or like, how does that, if, if it does get in the way of staying when staying is maybe the right, but less comfortable choice? I have two answers to that because I've obviously thought about, I mean, I wrote a whole, <laughs> this was like my, this was like half of my journal um, vacation <laughs> was about this. And actually the person I broke up with said something about me being self-destructive and ruining everything good. But I, but that's not true. I mean, like, let me just put it really clearly. I think first of all, my first answer to this is what's, what, what if I told you I was pathologically addicted to the beginnings of things, Mm -hmm. then that would mean, or more attuned to it, or my comfort zone was in the starting scratch. It both, those two things aren't disconnected. Starting and, and ending are connected. So if you end something, you must then start something. That is a new beginning. And if you begin something, something else ended. And so I do think that, one, they're just the same thing and that we're always kind of ending and beginning. And so I think the first answer is no. I I feel that I am fluid. I actually feel not that I'm always looking to run from something when it's hard because I would have a very – I would have chosen a really different life. You know, I wouldn't be sober and I wouldn't, um, you know, uh, be, I wouldn't have built a company, you know, that took like seven years of commitment and, and, you know, will probably, you know, require my involvement for the rest of my life and, and on and on. And I think that sometimes we can get into the stories we tell ourselves and say, I'm just this way. So like, for instance, I told a therapist like a couple months ago, oh, I, I just don't like being around people that much. I just like to be by myself. And she challenged me on that. And I went out and proved that I actually really love being around people. And so I think we have to get really careful about like when we say, I'm just this way, because we kind of are all the ways, you know, like we're kind of everything. The other piece of this is absolutely yes. I think that, yeah, like I, if I'm really like comfortable in blowing things up, um, does that mean that I have a tendency to blow things up? And the answer is absolutely yes. It's really easy for me to walk away, but I also, that's part of, part of my process is knowing, you know, sometimes I've stayed too long in things, you know, and sometimes like well beyond their expiration. And sometimes, um, I've left things, you know, prematurely, but what I actually wrote down about, this relationship or, and, and like was, I wrote down, it feels like I'm running out of a burning building. And why do I always run out of burning buildings? And then I read the piece to my friend whose house I was staying at. And she was like, why would someone stay inside a burning building? Mm -hmm. You know? And so anyway, I I think it's, there's no yes and no, but I I think that when the the answer is, if you're, uh, what I try and bring to it is self-awareness and accountability yeah, to not leave something prematurely or to leave something a mess, but also to not stay when it's something that is no longer serving me. 
I feel a lot of resonance in your story, which is probably what prompted me to like ask that <laughs> clarifying question. But I think what what I am personally getting from what you're saying, and obviously, you know, anyone listening can get whatever they get from it, but <laughs> what I'm getting from it is the reminder that is actually very comforting to me that there's not a formula for whether to stay or whether to go that like if I only can figure out what the right formula is, like then I'm never going to have to be in pain again. Yeah. I think that there's this, and again, sort of like when you were saying earlier, the if I get X, then I'll be happier. When I reach this place, like then I'll feel fulfilled. I think that a similar, I can have a similar like grasping desire around the the myth of the the right processing techniques or you know having my the right internal sensor alarms go off at the right time so that I can walk away at the exact perfect moment when nobody's in pain like it's not real and it's not real. yes our discernment gets better with experience over time growing compassion growing empathy you know all of these things are communication but it's a mess actually and like what if that were okay it is a mess. And I love, thank you. I feel very validated by what you The said. mutual validation yeah. session, just like back and forth, back <laughs> Well, because and forth. I'm thinking about you too. I'm like, oh yeah. Like she's like, I get why you're asking it because of what's happened. Like just in the five years I have known you, mm-hmm. I'm always just like, look at her go. And like, I am in awe. I like, oh my God, van life. I mean, I just, I think our mutual friend, Adam and I talked about you when you when you hiked the PCT or before you did or maybe it was it was when you were just you know kind of starting to really go out in the world and I think that I don't I think like first of all each of us are going to have our own unique you know life paths I don't think everybody needs to you know maybe move at the speed that you do or that I do or you know but I also think you're when I see you in your nature I'm just like that is exactly what I admire and would expect. Mm. And so I also think I'm reading this really good book right now that our other mutual friend, Laura McCowan recommended to me, and it's called Let Your Life Speak. Have you heard of it? Uh, I have seen her post about it and write about it, but I haven't read it yet. (laughs) So she recommended it to me. And the thing about it is the whole point of it is just like in one sentence, what is being whispered to you, right? What is being given to you? What you're being called to do is yours. And that's it. Not what you're supposed to be doing. Not what the, like, it is like listening to your, you know, he says isness or whatever. But like, it's just listening to, listening, listening. And I find it so fascinating because when I actually listen to myself, I make extremely good decisions, even if they don't make sense to other people. It's when I don't listen to myself. That's the pull quote from this conversation. <laughs> when I actually listen to myself, I make really good decisions. Yeah. It's true. So I keeping in mind that I will not hold you to any of these things, using that question you just posed of, you know, what's whispering to you, what is? Oh wow. Um what is? I think what is is I have spent many years listing goals of what I wanted to achieve and none of them included the word happiness in them or contentment or balance or health. It's so weird. It was like become a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> Check. Check. And also, you know, it's I my one of my one of my yoga teachers always says, I've never been able to do like splits, Hanuman. And she always says 
what, you know, and she can. And she always says, do you know what happens when you can, you know, fully go into Hanuman? And, you know, she always says nothing, nothing happens, you know? And I do think that it's so important to have things, goals, things to work toward. And at the same time, I think that one of the biggest learnings that I am taking with me right now is that if you're not actually enjoying the journey to get there, um, you're missing the point. And I, right now, what is calling to me is like to, to stop <laughs> and to pay attention and to figure out how, as I build, um, you know, I'm working on a second book, but how do I build, how do I build stuff? How do I have goals and, and move towards aspiration? But also, how do I make sure that I'm happy along the way? Mm-hmm. How do I just make it less painful for myself? So what's calling to me is writing. Um, what's calling to me is, is really nesting and taking care of myself. And what's calling to me is being in joy, like as much as I can, and, and to not worry so much. I remember a couple of years ago, I interviewed my friend Lauren, and she talked about something like a, a goal of hers at that time was to practice satisfaction, or like practice contentment, like to think about being content, being satisfied, you know, as a not really like a state that you arrive at, but as a thing that you practice and as a thing that you practice side by side with whatever your, you know, wild ambition is. And I think about that all the time and I hear that a lot in what you're saying too, because it doesn't mean don't have strong drive for big things if those are the right fit things for you or if that's actually what you really want. It's not like, okay, well, I have to tamp down these desires in order to make myself be satisfied with this like smaller thing if that doesn't feel true. But it's like looking at how can I practice contentment or satisfaction or whatever word resonates, right? Happiness along the way. And I don't have necessarily like a capital A answer to that, but it's something that I think about a lot. It's so well said because you, the, like, I think life is delicious because of ambition and possibility. I love potential. And life is also really delicious just by, like, you know, I was at lunch yesterday with my mom and she was being, she was frustrating me terribly. And then I was trying to have a serious conversation with her and she was being silly and I wanted to stay on track and move the conversation forward. And I couldn't help myself. I just was laughing so hard at her. And it was just like that moment of like, right, like just like, like stop being so serious. Just enjoy this. You know, like, why does it, it does nothing has to be that hard. And there is a, there, there's actually like an even better, like better, bigger lesson in this. There's, you know, especially when it like goes back to addiction, which I, I think addiction, not just as someone that's in recovery from substance misuse, but also as somebody, you know, that's just a human. I think all of us are really addicted. But there is a book called The Molecule of More. Um, and it's a book on dopamine. Have you read it? Mm-mm, no, but that's a great title. Right. It talks about how we most likely are dopamine forward or dopaminergic forward as a species because dopamine is motivating. And dopamine is probably what drove us out to explore and to colonize the world, you know, like moved you know, early tribes of homo sapiens out of Africa and propelled us to every corner of the earth. 
And that like the further away something is, the populations tend to be more dopamine heavy. And that this, it's really important, like as a survival mechanism, dopamine is an extremely important, I almost said molecule, molecule, but an, an extremely important neurotransmitter. But dopamine is also what's connected to never being happy, to always, it's, it's not the, you know, it's not the neurotransmitter of satisfaction. It's the neurotransmitter of dissatisfaction. It's wanting mm-hmm. and never having enough. And it's what drives, you know, all addiction as well as, you know, productivity. And anyway, so the book talks about, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's, but also it's balanced by, and it doesn't, it's not active. And I don't know how true their science is. This is, you know, it was a book, I think it was written by a neuroscientist, but, and I don't know how great I am at relaying it, but what I picked up from it was that dopaminergic pathways don't fire up when serotonin, I don't know, like the here and now uh, neurotransmitters are firing. So oxytocin or serotonin, that basically you can't really be fully present and experiencing like those like intimate, I'm witnessing the present moment and also have your, I need to go and, you know, like snort all that Coke or run a marathon um, pumping. And so to me, what I got from that book is like this balance between being very aware of when I'm motivated and what like, and, and, and really harnessing that, but also working on the producing those like here and now moments and that and moving between those two networks rather than being fully in this, you know, what I have been in, which is, you know, productive, accomplish, mm-hmm. conquer. Yeah. And potentially experimenting with a different way of doing things and seeing how that feels. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I also, I try sometimes successfully, sometimes not to hold things like with a little bit of a looser grasp in terms of it really works well for me to treat my life as an experiment because I can just get way too serious about things and take things way too seriously and feel like I have to know, you know, what step 20 is going to look like before I'm willing to take step one. And that's not how it goes. And so the more I can be, I'm just going to try this other thing and see what happens. That's usually the entrance point or like the doorway into something good for me. Yeah. You're here. And to just, yeah, to just like see, see what's next. But I love, I love that question that you shared of, you know, what is whispering to you? There's, it's also, there's something really gentle. There's like a really gentle invitation in that question. It's not, what do you want, right? Like, what are you going to do? Like, it's, it's, it, it doesn't have that hard, gritty energy to it, but it opens up space for you don't have to actually have it fully formed or know the answers, but like, no. what's the whisper and paying attention to that a little bit more? What's the thing calling to you? And I think the other piece is like, what's calling to you sometimes is not going to be the most convenient thing. You know, yeah. what's calling to you is sometimes an extremely impossible ask. Do you feel like there, are there any of your whispers that feel really inconvenient? I think that I've been through a number of the inconvenient ones um, recently. Nothing at the moment, Um, but I think I have, I think I have been there and done that in the last year a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You certainly have. You have had a year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, right now feels really open. It feels really wide. It feels mm-hmm. really exciting. And I think I was thinking back, you know, in a seven-year cycle again, like seven years ago, uh, I left everything I knew and I was miserable because I was so desperate to create the next thing. And I, it was, I was never doing enough ever. I was never, ever like 
I never gave myself a break. I couldn't enjoy it. I was upset at myself for being lazy and unmotivated and not productive enough and not being farther along and, you know, this, that, or that. And I am trying really hard right now to not try really hard and just to actually be chill and to trust, right? Like to actually trust that, like, even though I can't really see, you know, things like I, I once saw them, you know, and I don't have like this fully formed picture of like what is what is in front of me. I have more evidence that it's okay to, to trust that, you know, things are kind of divinely, not kind of, things are divinely guided, at least in yes. my belief system. So I want to be respectful of your time. And I have one kind of potentially like a wrap up question, like one more question I would sure. love to ask you. So you mentioned, you know, as we were kind of talking about the different threads, right? You know, publishing the book and starting the company and then stepping down as CEO, being in what you thought was the, you know, perfectly manifested relationship and realizing that wasn't it and kind of untangling yourself in different ways from all of those things. I'm mm -hmm. interested in anything that you can share. Uh, that you have learned about, like, <laughs> this might be a really weird question, Holly, but how to disappoint people. Because I can imagine mm. that in all of those situations, there were people who wanted you to make a different choice or who would have been happy mm -hmm. or more convenient. <laughs> it would have been more convenient for them if you made a different choice. Is there anything you can share about learning to disappoint people asking for a me? <laughs> yeah, I think that it really does come back down to you're just going to have to be okay with any response. You can't really control for disappointing people. I mean, that's just it. Like you're going to disappoint people. And it is about not internalizing what someone else's experience or what you should or shouldn't be doing. Letting them have that, you know, really letting them have that and not taking on. It doesn't mean, you know, I love Renee Brown's suggestion that you, the people whose feedback and an advice you want, you know, should fit on a tiny little piece of paper, one inch by one inch, five names or so of people whose opinion you really care about because they've earned, you know, their, their place on that piece of paper to be honest and not self-directed in, in informing you about your decisions. And I think that everyone that's not on that piece of paper, you just need to let go of what their reactions are. And so I have had Oh, I mean, if you can just imagine between all of those things, you know, so many different reactions and, and like most of them extremely supportive, but plenty of them not. And I think I had one recently, you know, at the ending of the last relationship um, and it was a pretty brutal um, conversation. And I, that was, you know, their experience of it, my experience, I, I had to like not take on their experience of it, mm -hmm. you know? And I think like relationships are a real interesting one. Cause oftentimes when you end a relationship, you're not on the same page. You're not, you know, it's not typically like let's peacefully and mutually agree, you know, to, to stop being in a relationship. It's usually hard yeah, to say the least and very personal and everyone's stuff is triggered. And so I think there is just like, for me, my, my, my main job is to just stay in my own experience of something. I'm mm -hmm. such a sponge. And I think that there is, when you're disappointing people, especially if you are a person that has a hard time letting people down, if you're a pleaser or you're codependent, whatever the hell it is, whatever you want to call it, I have found great value in exposing myself to other people's terrible reactions <laughs> to, what, to my boundaries or decisions 
and letting them keep their terrible reactions for themselves and, and then remaining in my own truth and my own decisions and letting those be entirely separate things that are happening to two separate people. Oh yeah, that's, that's very well said. And sort of the reminder that like you, it's not that you're only allowed to have boundaries if everyone else is okay with them. That's sort of like defeats the purpose, right? (laughs) So if you could leave folks with one call to action based on our conversation, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves, a small action to take of everything we've talked about. What would you love to offer for folks? Oh my God. I really, this whole time I've been thinking about this and I'm actually going to do it when we get off this call. This exercise I did seven years ago with a coach that was called the circle exercise. And I've used it on hip sobriety. I think you can find it if you Google hip sobriety circle exercise. And I think Tempest uses it now too, in a lot of its materials. But the circle exercise is where you take a piece of paper and you draw a stick figure of yourself and you draw a circle around the stick figure and then you draw another circle around that and then you draw and then and then you have the rest of the paper. So stick figure in a circle, circle around that. In the first circle, you write out everything that you have going on in your life, good and bad right now, right? Like all, like your existing situation and maybe it's unfulfilling relationship, maybe it's paycheck, health insurance, I don't know, like good and bad. What 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 are the things? And then the next circle is what are you afraid of? And you might write, like maybe you are thinking about sharing your opinion. That's an unpopular opinion. And I, when I did this, I was talking about alcohol and recovery and AA. And I was like, people hating me. I was afraid of losing money. I was afraid of losing friends. And then I, you know, in the larger circle, in the outer circle, you write, what are the things you absolutely dream of? You know, and it was mm-hmm. like, starting an or like starting a company, writing a book. And then you take an arrow at the like from the self and you draw or you take a, the, a pencil and you you put the in the center of the page on the self and you draw an arrow from the center out to the outer court like outer corner of the page. And it just is a reminder that here's where you are, here's what you have to go through in order to get that. And so it's just what is what I'm afraid of, what I want. And what you're afraid of is typically how you get to what you want. Right. That you can't get from where you are. to. Yeah. That's incredible. Yes. I shall be taking that. Thank you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is great for everyone. <laughs> it's so good because you're like, oh yeah, I might, if I want to do this, I'm going to lose friends. I'm going to have, you know, financial insecurity. I'm going to, you know, like potentially be disliked by trolls on the internet. But that's how you get to what you want to go or to where you're going. Yeah. And I just I do so much mental gymnastics to try to figure out like which levers to pull that are gonna let me like leap over and sidestep those fears, right? Like I really it's cute. I really like let me figure out how I can do this in a way that's gonna, you know, not have to go through any of those fears. And spoiler alert, <laughs> that's not how it works. So that's not how it works. What is the best place for people to find you and say hi if that is a thing you are open to? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah. Um, my website is hollywhitaker.com. And then, um, and that's just where, you know, like links and writing and stuff goes. Um, and then you can also find me on at Holly, um, just like my handles Holly on Instagram. I don't use any other social media. And then there's also Tempest, our organization that helps people to find individualized paths of recovery. Mm. I will put links to all of those things right in our show notes. Holly, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. I appreciate you so much. This is exactly what I needed. (laughs) Yay. Yay. (laughs) 
And that's our show for today. Our music is by Adam Day, who also handles our sound editing. Thanks, Adam. You're the best. And huge thanks again, I can't say this enough, to our Patreon community for making this honest conversation, this whole entire podcast, and so much of my other work possible. Like my weekly personal essay and discussion thread series on Substack, which is called Good Question. Yep, that is funded by the Patreon community as well. Your monthly funding allows me to keep creating resources and gatherings for folks who crave honest conversations, both with themselves and others, and I fully believe that these conversations can change our lives, our relationships, and our world. Maybe that sounds like a lofty goal, but it is one that I believe in with my whole heart. To join us, just come on over to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Our community operates on a shame-free sliding scale, so you can feel good about supporting this work from within your own means. So I'll see you over in the Patreon community. Yes, hopefully. And until next time, know that you are doing great. You are exactly enough. You are not alone. And I am totally rooting for you. 